You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt. Derivatives in the fiat world are a massive market. The numbers are sometimes overblown because there's layers of risk of like derivatives that are offsetting and people count the total notional. But suffice it to say, it's a huge, huge market measured in the trillions of dollars. And that's really only been an institutional market. So if you think that we can bring this derivative concept as a really a protocol for risk transfer to the masses, that seems like a big market to me. Today, we are joined by Hart Lamber, co-founder of UMA. UMA is a decentralized financial contracts platform that believes financial markets should be universally accessible. UMA is designed to power the financial innovations made possible by permissionless public blockchains like Ethereum. Using concepts borrowed from fiat financial derivatives, UMA defines an open source protocol that allows any two counterparties to design and create their own financial contracts. But unlike traditional derivatives, UMA contracts are secured with economic incentives alone, making them self-enforcing and universally accessible. I'm thrilled to host Hart today because UMA just launched their first supported product, U.S. Stocks. U.S. Stocks is an ERC-20 token representing synthetic ownership of an index of the 500 largest exchange-listed U.S. stocks. This means that anybody with access to the internet and digital money can participate in the U.S. stock market. UMA has a massive opportunity ahead of it, as is the infrastructure layer powering endless possibilities of synthetic assets. Most non-U.S. investors can't access U.S. public equities, but with UMA, they can now buy a token that tracks shares in Apple and in Google. Hart is incredibly smart and has a deep background in both finance and computer science. I think you will greatly enjoy today's episode. Hart, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm Hart Lambert from UMA. Great. Now, look very much looking forward to this podcast. So, Hart, tell me a little bit about your background. What were you doing before UMA? I uh, studied computer science back in the day and then rather randomly ended up as a bond trader at Goldman Sachs for eight years through the financial crisis. And that was pretty fun. <laughs> Learned a lot um, doing that. I left Goldman in 2013 um, and started a fintech business called Openfolio. That wrapped up a year and a half, two years ago, and I've been working on this project uh, for basically the past year. Yeah, I was at, I think we overlapped at Goldman from 2009, 2011. There's a great alumni base coming out of um, Goldman that's interested in crypto and kind of this next generation of financial products. So it's great to see. And Hart, how, how do you get the crypto bug? What brought you into this space? Um, from that Goldman alumni network. Um, it's not just a vampire squid, apparently. But actually, Fred Ursum, you know, one of the co-founders of Coinbase, was my friend or acquaintance at Goldman. And he's the guy that got me into crypto way back in the uh, early days of Coinbase. So I, I credit him. Great. Uh, he's done a lot for the space. So what is UMA? And maybe we can start with what does it mean? There's also this like regional pronunciation thing. It seems like West Coast people say UMA and we seem to be saying UMA back in New York. But um, either way, the UMA stands for Universal Market Access. Um, and we just wanted uh, a name or I guess an acronym that reflects uh, our bigger vision and what we're trying to do. So create universal market access for uh, financial products. So let's start with where we are today. So you had a big announcement today. This happened a few hours ago. Maybe you can start with what, what that announcement is and where you're headed over the next couple of weeks here. 
Our first product went live today, a product we're calling US Stocks. It's not created by us. We are just the infrastructure layer to create these products. But US Stocks is this uh, effectively an S&P 500 tracking token. So it's a crypto token that will track the performance of the S&P 500 or the 500 largest stocks by market cap in the US. And it's being traded and listed on a decentralized exchange, DDEX, based in Beijing. And is there a limited supply or is the supply elastic based on demand? It is elastic based on demand. There's a very interesting concept actually taken from the ETF market called Create Redeem Arbitrage. So if and when the token supply trades above fair value, new tokens get created to push the price back towards fair value. And the opposite happens in reverse. So if the token's trading cheap, tokens get purchased and redeemed and pulled back to fair value that way. So who, who would want to buy this? Is it someone that is not in the United States and therefore doesn't have access to the U.S. equity markets, but wants exposure to the broader S&P? Totally. To be very clear, this product is not accessible to people in the U.S., nor is it marketed to them. U.S. investors are lucky. They have access to really all the best developed financial market products out there. The target here are people that don't have access to real developed investment product. Um, so that's going to be a lot of uh, emerging markets. Uh, emerging markets in Asia are a good example, Africa. That's who we'd love to see use this product. And we'll, uh, we'll see if that happens. So how do I interact with this product? Is it being sold on a decentralized crypto exchange right now? Is it as simple as buying the token and then the price tracks uh, the index? Yeah, the latter. Um, we designed this as nothing more than an ERC-20 token that will, under the scenes, behind the hood, track the S&P 500 performance. So you buy it on exchange, decentralized, centralized, wherever you buy it, and you own it and you get that performance. And that's it. There's no DAP that you need to interface with. There's no, no website, no, nothing you need to do. You just get to have this asset exposure. That's really interesting. So walk me through um, how this token was created. You're the infrastructure layer, but you know who, who built this and launched this and when will you open up to other tokens? Maybe worth going into just a second about how it works. So the underlying premise here is this, or the underlying concept is this synthetic derivative. So if you think about a classic synthetic derivative, worth explaining to yep, your listeners. Please do. The classic synthetic derivative in the fiat world is effectively a legal agreement between two counterparties. So you might want to go long the S&P 500 and I want to go short it. And we enter into a legal agreement where I pay you the upside and you pay me the downside and we settle this up in a year's time. And that's a really useful financial innovation because it lets the two of us transact risk, trade the S&P 500, but synthetically with nothing more than this legal agreement, which means we don't need to move S&P 500 shares back and forth. We don't have to do anything other than honor the terms of the contract. So traditionally, that contract is secured by two mechanisms so that we both believe it will be honored. And those mechanisms are margining. We post and redeem collateral as the value of the contract changes and legal recourse. You, you'll sue me if I don't follow the terms of trade. So that's all well and good. But this legal recourse requirement uh, means this is a permission system. It's really not accessible, not globally accessible. You've got to be very, very wealthy or an institution to have access to that type of over-the-counter derivative. Uh, you're not getting synthetic derivatives in your Robinhood account. Yeah, exactly. So long and short of what we've done is like we've taken that concept, we've embedded it into this token structure, 
And we've created a mechanism where one side of effectively the synthetic derivative fully collateralizes their position and we tokenize it. So we make it into a, a tradable element. The other side, the short side, is what we're calling a token sponsor who um, is responsible for remargining and paying in the total return of the S&P 500 to make sure that it continues to track whatever the underlying synthetic derivative represents. Mm -hmm. So how much work is it to create one of these tokens? Right now, it's not um, something that I'd recommend doing in your basement. We're getting there. So right now, in order to create, to be a token sponsor, it requires some degree of financial sophistication, maybe access to some hedging instruments and ability to kind of manage this risk. You also have to be online all the time. You have to be paying attention and be willing, ready and willing to remargin your contract to make good on your obligations according to the, the smart contract logic. We very much like the idea of opening this up of creating a system where anyone can become a token sponsor or create their own products. Um, and that's kind of on our roadmap in the relatively near term. So how does um, UMA make money? We make money off of the so-called Oracle. So part of the requirement of the system here is that there is a, a price feed or an Oracle that you can use to validate whatever the uh, fair price is of the underlying synthetic derivative. In the early versions, we've centralized this Oracle function. This is purely to get to market faster. And we are charging our token sponsors a small fee for access to this Oracle system. That's just a short-term strategy just to let them know that the Oracle function isn't free. Our long or medium-term plans are to build a decentralized Oracle system. And that decentralized Oracle system or our ownership in it is our business model for how we make money. So one of the, and you guys have, a, have done a great job posting on Medium, so everyone to check it out. Um, but one of the taglines said, um, UMA allows risk to move across the internet without a central authority or single point of failure. So what do you mean by that, uh, allowing risk to move across the internet? When you think about uh, financial infrastructure today, it's surprisingly localized. Mm -hmm. Financial products made in one jurisdiction are not accessible to another. And the reason for that is really a custody issue. You have stocks or money that are held in banks or vaults or custodians or brokers. And there's a legal system and an entire like infrastructure that's very country specific, very regime specific to all of that, that financial workings. So what we're really looking at is how can we unlock the borders between all these financial products? And synthetic derivatives are kind of a really useful shortcut to do that. If you can make synthetic assets tradable, you can create really what looks like a protocol for risk transfer, a mechanism by which anybody anywhere can access synthetic financial products that are borderless and global. Mm -hmm. And this to me seems like sort of the obvious future of where finance on the internet is supposed to go. It should be one universally accessible market without barriers to entry that's accessible to anyone anywhere. So paint me a picture of what this looks like and how this is advanced and grows over the next five years. I mean, do you imagine you have synthetic derivatives, which rolls up into a token for hundreds of thousands of assets? Are they all financial assets? I mean, what, what will this look like? I think that there will be a lot of new tokenized assets or existing real world assets that have a tokenized representation on the blockchain. That'll happen for sure. Whether it's focused on commonly traded big name like real world assets or a long tail of products, I think remains to be seen. 
ideas or financial products that I think should exist, take a Wealthfront or Betterment. Those are interesting and useful financial products, but are only accessible to U.S. people. And it's pretty bizarre when you think about an internet startup that at size, at scale, that specifically limits its user base to just U.S. users. These are supposed to be like global products. I really like the idea of this whole open finance DeFi movement setting the stage for global uh, financial or fintech products. So you could have a Wealthfront or Betterment version 3.0 that is accessible to anyone anywhere and not localized to any specific country or jurisdiction. Okay, so so UMA is an important piece of infrastructure. How do you think about your product roadmap and, and what you're offering all the participants and ecosystem going forward? The products we want to see created in the short term would look like an S&P 500 token that's long, an inverse token, one that lets you bet on the stock market going down, mm-hmm. and levered versions of that. Let's take a 3x levered or 4x levered long and short token. We'd like to see the same thing exist for all the other major market indices. So NASDAQ, FTSE 100, other different countries' exchanges, gold and oil, and any other real-world assets that people show demand for. We can use the exact same infrastructure and do the same thing with crypto products. So we can create an ERC-20 token that represents synthetic Bitcoin ownership using the same infrastructure. We can create an inverse token for that, a 3x levered Bitcoin ERC-20, and do the same thing for all the other major crypto coins. And so those are the initial products that we'd like to see get to market and get to market quickly. Beyond that, it's really responding to community feedback and trying to figure out where demand is going, what products people really want to see created on the blockchain. So how does that work with a 3x levered product? If I buy the 3x levered synthetic Bitcoin product and Bitcoin uh, drops by 80% in price, what happens to me and my token? Functionally, it would look like a 3x levered ETF, although to be very clear, these are not ETFs. But if you buy a 3x levered ETF, by resetting, by compounding the way it does, if it drops 80%, it'll asymptotically approach zero over time. And what you'd ultimately need to do is relist or recreate a new token at a new strike price to recreate that risk exposure if the price were to drop 80%. Yeah. So hearing you talk, I mean, you're such a strong combination of the financial acumen um, from your time at Goldman, but also the the technical background from your time as an engineer and computer science major. So tell me about the team composition. Well, it's very interdisciplinary. Yeah, it really is. And I I can't say strongly enough how lucky I am to work with the people I get to work with. My co-founder, Allison, is a rock star, totally awesome. I worked with her side by side at Goldman for five years. And then we built this team of exceptional blockchain engineers, uh, exceptional product folks, and some really interesting financial engineering folks, too. So a lot of what we spend time on and what I think is an increasingly interesting focus in the blockchain space are the financial engineering aspects of these products that are getting created. Uh, so we have a former strat from actually from Goldman again um, that is uh, helping us with the financial engineering design. And lastly, we're super fortunate to have some really strong economic talent around the table. I'm fortunate to have a very close friend be a professor of economics at Stanford, uh, and he's put us in touch with, um, well, he's helping as well as some other uh, economists around the table that are really helpful with the mechanism design aspects of our system. 
Yeah, so maybe you can touch upon that briefly, right? There's so many different parties involved. So maybe in a in somewhat of a simplistic example, you could just walk through the different incentives um, for each party involved. I look at all this blockchain stuff as programming incentive structures. Sure. Uh, it's the most fun thing out there. So for us, you start by assuming everybody's the worst possible actor. And you got the token holder that's probably trying to cheat the token sponsor in this example. And on the blockchain, there's no court system to tell anybody they're wrong or to send them to jail. So you got to do this all with economic incentives. So the way our contract works is both sides have posted enough margin. They've collateralized it enough, kind of like what Maker's doing with their CDPs. There's risks or there's default penalties if you don't do what you say you're going to do. And those risks or economic guarantees work under a set of known assumptions within the system. So Maker, for example, has this 150% collateralization ratio. Sure. We have a lower collateralization ratio because the S&P 500 is a much lower risk product than Ether. Ours is currently set at 8.5%. So if the S&P 500 were to move more than 8.5% within a very short period of time, our system might fall apart. But that's extremely unlikely, and we do our own analysis to set that parameter and set those levels. And you're making that recommendation of 8.5%. So that's an asset-by-asset collateralization ratio. We're working with whoever is creating the product to help come up with what we think a reasonable number is. Ultimately, again, the the system is parameterized and the people creating these tokens kind of get to set the parameters where they want. Sure. So how, how, what's the, the token sponsor's incentives for doing this? The token sponsor gets to charge a fee for the service they're providing. So if you go back to this analogy of kind of we talked about earlier, where you have the token holder doesn't have to stay online, doesn't have to pay attention, doesn't have to do anything. The token sponsor is doing all the work of making sure that token stays properly collateralized. Sure. They're charging effectively a service fee for doing that. And it looks like uh, an expense ratio in an ETF or equivalent like charges. And they're doing that again uh, to compensate them for the work they're doing. The token sponsor has the ability to go and possibly hedge in the real world. Mm -hmm. So if this token sponsor creates a million dollars of these S&P 500 tokens, they would be short a million dollars of risk. But they can go into the real world and say access something like the CME that has E-mini futures that represent ownership in the SP 500, or represent risk exposure to the SP 500, and they can go and buy E-mini futures to hedge themselves. And so the token sponsor basically is playing this uh, bridge between fiat world liquidity and the crypto world, and they're being economically compensated to do so. And are they also doing the marketing? I mean, obviously, financial products and money have very high virality and, and natural network effects. The closer you get to someone's bank account, you know, the more attention they're going to pay, the more word of mouth um, they're going to share the product around. But is the token sponsor also marketing the product? Because they're incentivized to have as much uh, volume out there as possible, right? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Exchanges are also interested in marketing the product. And again, this is sort of it's where we fit in this ecosystem is we're actually not the ones marketing the product. Right. We want to just be building this infrastructure that these token sponsors and that the exchanges and that the end token holders actually want to use. Mm-hmm. And what do you guys ultimately decide? So you'll decide the collateralization ratio for each asset or influence at at least. Do you have influence and authority into which exchanges can actually list your token? What other parameters and levers can you guys pull in terms of your influence on the system? Yeah, I think really our influence is in the contract design, the core infrastructure and what that can support. And then really promoting that infrastructure to various token sponsors, repairs, people that want to use this thing. 
So fast forward a couple of years, and how does your infrastructure make money? Um, you talked a little bit about being the paid Oracle system today, but what, what does that look like in perpetuity or in equilibrium? There might be a whole other podcast on this, Zach. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll do part two. Which, which will be fun. But we have this uh, decentralized Oracle system where there is a native token embedded in this decentralized Oracle system. And to be very clear, I'm skeptical of a lot of native token designs. We really try to beat this one up to justify its existence. This token effectively looks like a voting right, a voting, uh, voting share in this decentralized Oracle design. And this decentralized Oracle design is designed to trustlessly, permissionlessly, and, and in a decentralized way, resolve disputes over any contract disagreements or any valuations on what contracts should be worth. We will make money in the future by owning some, but certainly not all, of the tokens used in this decentralized Oracle model. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So how big of a market is this? I think it's a big market. Derivatives in the fiat world are a massive market. The numbers are sometimes overblown because there's layers of risk of like derivatives that are offsetting and people count the total notional. But suffice it to say, it's a huge, huge market measured in the trillions of dollars. And that's really only been an institutional market. So if you think that we can bring this derivative concept as a really a protocol for risk transfer to the masses, that seems like a big market to me. This feels like an absolutely enormous market, right? I mean, you have 13 trillion of M2, you have 200 trillion of real estate. And if you're creating synthetic products around a lot of our equity market and real estate market and all of the tokenization that's going to happen, I mean, it's, it's almost limitless. And you'll actually expand the market opportunity, right? So I want, I want to ask you about competition on, on two levels. Level one is, is there any competition for the infrastructure work that UMA is doing today? And level two is, do you anticipate a lot of competition between token sponsors? Token sponsor one launches the S&P, token sponsor two launches an S&P product. And are they competing on the expense ratio and you know, other service-oriented aspects? Those are great questions. Uh, let's answer your second one first. If we have multiple S&P 500 tokens, that's not necessarily good for the market because there's fragmentation of liquidity. Sure. But it also happens. You know, you look at the ETF space, there are multiple S&P 500 ETFs. So you can't kind of stop that from happening. We are looking to uh, design infrastructure and systems that allow for fungible um, tokens created by multiple token sponsors. So we're currently calling this internally a, an open token sponsor model. So one token sponsor might create one version of say a US stocks or S&P 500 tracking token, and another token sponsor could step in and create additional liquidity in that token or step out. So that's a, a mechanism to help coordinate the activity of these different token sponsors, reduce fragmentation of liquidity, and create more fungible products that would probably be better and easier for a consumer to use. Mm -hmm. So that's on the roadmap. In terms of competition from like an infrastructure perspective, there's a lot of really great DeFi projects that are overlapping for sure, but all kind of optimized for different things. You could call a maker system who we're super close with. You know, MakerDAI um, is the, the margin currency underlying our first product. Uh, the maker system, you could call a, a synthetic derivative to create a single stable coin. Sure. And they've talked uh, a lot about how they could use the same system to create other types of synthetic derivative assets. But their system is purpose geared right now, at least, towards creating a single stable coin 
and has all sorts of functionality just to maintain the peg of that stable coin. That could be expensive. Um, and our system, again, is more purpose geared towards the other thing, which is not a stable coin, but uh, a synthetic derivative token. Projects like DYDX are also complementary, in my view. DYDX is, is super useful for collateralized margin and lending. Really quickly, maybe slightly finance nerdy, but you know, if you think about how you could go about shorting Apple stock, there's two ways to do it. You can go and borrow Apple stock and then sell it. And that's kind of like what DYDX enables. Or you could enter into a synthetic derivative agreement where you, like a total return swap, where one side's short Apple and the other side's long. And that's like what we do. So long and short, or long answer to your question is that all these derivative projects I think are overlapping, or these, these infrastructure projects are overlapping, and different use cases will work better for some versus others. Mm-hmm. You talked about Wealthfront Betterment. What, what do you think the future of wealth management looks like? I mean, there's going to be so many tokens, so many different products. It's going to get increasingly complicated to track and to manage and to, to make recommendations. And you, you, a lot of this will probably get abstracted away and have different advisor, robo-advisors. But you know, you're, you're contributing to this in a very positive way, right? You're creating new financial products and new financial access for a lot of people that don't have access to uh, certain equity markets. And this is a huge plus to the social fabric and social well-being of a lot of the economy. But um, you know, how, how do you think about the next derivative of that, which is the wealth management and you know, that whole industry? I really hope we're contributing in a positive way. That's the intention. One of the things that worries me is that with new financial products often come some untoward behavior. Um, and you've seen this in crypto too, in general, where there, there are scams and people taking advantage of less educated participants. The biggest thing that finance in general needs is education. And that's like needed at a global level. It's needed at the US level. You look at the stats anywhere around general financial intelligence and people's savings and all that, it's awful and abysmal. I really do hope that DeFi type projects and ideas will allow for more experimentation, better products, so that we actually can create better financial products that are understood, an educated public that knows how to use them and actually get people into better, healthier financial habits because of them. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. What is your relationship with Ethereum? I mean, obviously, these are ERC-20 tokens you're creating. What's your view of Ethereum? Do you think there's you'll be on multiple chains that, at some point? That's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love what Ethereum has done, and I won't hide that, despite any chatter or problems to, to the contrary. Um, we need a smart contract platform to build what we're doing. And literally, you look at the landscape right now, and with the exception of maybe like Cosmos, which is launched, there isn't really a great alternative for us to do what we do. And Ethereum has been, despite some of the difficulties with Solidity and all that, Ethereum's great, and um, we are huge supporters. All that said, our approach and our technology really is blockchain or smart contract platform agnostic. So, you know, we're going to go wherever users want us to go. So if there's other platforms that people want us to build on, we will support them. How important is branding for a lot of these token sponsors and the, and the tokens are actually creating? You know, you think about the ETF market, you know, there's plenty of brands in the space that people know and trust. And is that a big part of the efforts with UMA and some of these first tokens that are launched and actually create a brand that people know and people trust and can keep coming back to? Looking at the ETF market, it's interesting because first of all, everybody uses ETFs. So if you think of ETFs as the infrastructure to create these products. The analogy here is that we want to be the ETF infrastructure. 
And so we become really behind the scenes, like HTTP is to the Facebook. We become UMA or UMA to creating these uh, these products. Past that, I think in the short term, a lot of the exchanges are probably going to be where a lot of the brand building gets done. And I'm not sure if there will be like a BlackRock or a Vanguard that creates products but isn't their own exchange. I'm not sure if that's going to happen in the short term, but I could see that happening in the long term where there are companies or institutions that are purpose-built to create financial product but not to necessarily um, trade it on or support run an exchange. Sure. Yeah, that actually is a great transition to my next question. So you, Allison, and the team are based in New York, the financial hub of the world. You're obviously coming from Goldman Sachs and have a great pedigree there. Have you been making enough noise where um, some of the larger financial institutions have started to approach you or started to you know, at least read your Medium posts or try to learn a little bit more about what you guys are building? Or is this still uh, pretty contained uh, within, within DeFi and within the crypto uh, native use cases at this point? Yeah, this is contained within DeFi. I think realistically, the Goldman Sachs and JP Morgans of the world, they got they got enough wood to chop in their own stuff. And this is a little too outside of their wheelhouse to touch. Where we do want to get a lot more feedback and make a lot more impact is in emerging markets. It will be in like Asia, places like that, I think are where our users are going to be. And so we want to stay close to them. How much visibility do you have into usage? What metrics can you track? Um, so it's, for example, this this first product, do you know where it's being used? Do you know how many tokens have been issued? Um, do you know trading volume? I mean, what, what KPIs will you know and what KPIs won't you know? This is the crazy thing about product development in crypto. It's global and pseudo-anonymous. Sure. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out like what exactly is going on. And so I think we got to get pretty good at reading the tea leaves. Mm -hmm. And again, the product launched today, so I don't really have much to tell you or talk about. But things that I think will be really interesting to track are turnover, like how long people hold the product for, how, how quickly they trade it. Is this being actively traded or not actively traded? You know, you can do some interesting blockchain analysis to kind of associate, map how many whales are there trading our things versus smaller fish. That'll be kind of interesting to look at. We'll also try to lean on the exchanges for some feedback on who's using this product. So DDEX has been a great launch partner for us. Try to get as much data as we can from them. But again, because they're a decentralized exchange, it's limited. They don't allow U.S. customers, but otherwise they... Their customers come from all over. It's really hard to see what's actually happening right. behind the scenes. How, how does KYC AML come into play here? And will U.S. investors ever have access to some of the products that are innovated and created um, you know, with the UMA infrastructure? I think the regula regulation question is a good one and a big one. What I'll state bluntly is that like we're not targeting U.S. people and have no intention to because the U.S. financial system works really well. So it's not our target market. I think under current jurisdiction and the way the, the world is pointed, it doesn't seem like U.S. people are going to have access to these products anytime soon because the regulatory hurdles, hurdles here are pretty high. And let's call that a feature, not a bug of the country. Right. But uh, it is what it is, you know. Yeah. Well, luckily, there's... Uh the market's huge outside of the U.S., right? And there's a lot of demand outside of the U.S. for exposure to 
U.S. equities. So you guys will have a very, very strong demand pull of your product, which is great. I hope so. <laughs> so, Well, let's talk a little bit about the crypto ecosystem. So you're, you're incredibly entrenched. Uh, this is a very important infrastructure project. You know, you, you spend a lot of time talking to different exchanges, different investors, um, you know, other entrepreneurs in the space. So what are some important trends you're seeing in the crypto ecosystem right now? I think this focus on financial engineering or this increasing understanding or appreciation for financial engineering is a good one in DeFi. And I think it's a trend that I'd like to see continue. The space should recognize that there's been a lot of work done previously in the fiat world about how to build financial products. And so I think tapping that knowledge base, I think will be good for the space. Same argument probably applies to economics in general, where there's in most things in crypto, there's like 40 years of economic literature about how they should work. What crypto does, and I, I don't want to underestimate the importance, crypto actually provides the tools to actually build and implement some of this economic theory, which I think is super exciting. Fast forward to 2025, what is different about the global financial system than today? And obviously, you guys will play a big part in this, I think. This idea of uh, a permissionless protocol for risk transfer to me, that means that financial products become globally accessible. I can't really state strongly enough how this is not the case. Like U.S. listeners won't really feel this, viscerally feel this. But, you know, I'm Canadian. Even in Canada, the quality of financial product that you can buy there, it's really subpar compared to what's offered in the U.S., which is nuts. It's like a developed country. It's got 35 million people, but it doesn't get to use the same financial infrastructure that the U.S. has. So a flattening of access to quality financial infrastructure seems like an obvious no-brainer, much in the same way that the internet flattened access to information and made it borderless and globally accessible. What are some of the early stage projects in crypto that you're personally excited about? You talked about Ethereum, you talked about Maker. Yeah, I love Maker. I love Ethereum. I like Augur. Augur has some real overlap with what we're doing, and I'm but I'm super excited about prediction markets. Um, I do love the ZeroX team and their focus on tokenization of the world. Uniswap or X times Y equals K automated market makers is fascinating. As a former market maker, thinking through the implications of Uniswap kind of makes my head hurt in a good way. It feels like core infrastructure that I'm super excited to see get developed. Yep. The Marble team uh, just today released um, a price oracle using Uniswap called Polaris. Uh, I need to read more on that. just came out, but I'm super excited about stuff like that. These kind of projects seem really interesting to me. Yeah, that's a good question. How, how do you spend your time as an early stage founder in crypto? I mean, there's so much new innovation that's happening every day. There's a lot of literature that comes out. Um, obviously, you're busy building the company, and, but I feel like the pace of change is just so rapid. You know, how do you try to keep up with everything and keep up with other projects and some of the innovations around Oracle systems? You don't. You can't. Uh, you do your best. Uh, you lean on smart people and good friends like you to highlight what's interesting and worth looking at. But I also can't help to read a lot of things in the space because it is so damn interesting. So, you know, I think there is this process of osmosis where you just sort of get in there and you're surrounded by it and the good stuff does seem to bubble up. I can't help but read about it when interesting stuff cross my path. Yeah, no, it's such an interesting space, right? I mean, as we talked about earlier, it's so interdisciplinary. So trying to keep pace with everything can make your head spin, but it's important just to try to find the 
the best project of the month and, and try to keep up with it. And but uh, it's been awesome reading about where you guys are building. It's, it's such an important part of the infrastructure. It's so great to do this podcast in your first day of launching. But this this is a question we usually ask all of our guests. So the crypto market today is valued at 140 billion. Where do you think we'll end the year? Do you think it'll be above where we are today? Do you think we'll have a pullback and be below where we are today? There's enough positive excitement right now. I feel like we've kind of turned the corner a bit where people seem as excited as they've been in the last couple of years about where the space is going. I hope that doesn't mean we rally hard, but I could see a slow grind up towards, say, like 200 billion market cap by the end of the year. That makes sense to me. The key takeaways from today's episode are one, UMA is a decentralized financial contracts platform built to enable universal market access, hence the name. Two, synthetic assets are incredibly important for the evolution of open finance because they make financial markets more accessible. Now, anyone in the world can be exposed to the U.S. stock market. That's profound for citizens in developing countries. And three, UMA is the infrastructure layer that will allow anyone to both create and trade synthetic assets. It will be exciting to see what people create now that you can trustlessly tokenize long, short, or levered exposure to real-world assets. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at zach at wing.vc.